two years. Two whole years have gone by since we first started the podcast. And what ground we've covered. The, the Methodist diaconal order encounters with prejudice and racism. Food banks. The legacy of one man's Dalit family. And how Girls Brigade toasted marshmallows virtually during the pandemic. Happy birthday to us. One. 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 I don't believe that anybody's beyond forgiveness, but I think that doesn't mean that you shouldn't challenge the injustice that's been perpetrated. When people sit down together who hold opposing views, they recognise not only their differences, but the things they hold in common. We have monthly activities for elderly. We try and address the need of our community at the point of need. This is One Voice. Because we're all the same. Hello, welcome. And thank you so much for listening and supporting One Voice all the way from that first tentative outing to this episode 24. Now, I usually leave the thanks to the end of the podcast, but on our second birthday, I really must thank the many, many guests who've appeared here so far and explored their story with us. We've been very privileged. We've learned so much. It's allowed us to experience other customs, cultures, and we'd like to think gone some way to cementing the notion of community and to mark the anniversary of the podcast some of what we're doing this month is a little bit different to what you've come to know half of one voice will be a celebration of some of the highlights from the last 24 months and the other half will be a conversation with Michael Wadsworth who's the learning and development officer for the eastern region of the Methodist Church and it's a chat in celebration of local preachers. The One Voice Podcast. Well, in the ninth episode, in February of 2021, Mel Brown, the Overston Pioneer Community Chaplain, came onto the podcast to talk about the incredibly proactive and vibrant outreach work she does in that part of Northamptonshire. Here's one of the ways contact was made between Mel and the new householders. Postcards have been sent over the last couple of weeks, and that's because of the lockdown. So I've not been able to go into the community because of the lockdown. Um, so what I've done is um, sent thinking, um, thinking of you cards to every household. And I mean, that sounds like that, that was no easy feat. Basically, it was handwriting um, 120 postcards, writing up envelopes, and posting them. And the thought behind that is really to keep the connection going. And I know from my point of view, I've received handwritten cards through the post during the lockdown, and it really has meant a lot to me. Um, and I would say possibly more than receiving an email, receiving a text, because I know the person who sent it literally went out of their way to write mm. this card. Honestly, mail is amazing there's such energy and commitment there if ever you get to meet mel ask her okay ask her about the fun day and the shetland pony the second episode of one voice had the subtitle lockdown reflections community spirit 
And where is God in all of this? And, you know, I vividly remember the Reverend Romeo Pedro being so keen to pick up on stories from the pandemic that really embodied this notion of love thy neighbour. Let's hear from Romeo. Since arriving in in this country nearly six years ago now, I've never seen such a sense of community as I'm seeing at the moment. People are helpful. People are reaching out to others. Um, you go for walks and, and people look at you. They, they greet you. It's just a different kind of community developing. It's, it's the kind of thing I was talking about in the first podcast, um, hoping to see and, and hoping to be part of. And, and so out of this really horrible situation has come something really, really good. Uh, I hear the most wonderful stories of, of how people reach out to vulnerable people um, and how people do shopping for mm-hmm. others. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, this sense of, Uh, what happens um, to you also affects me. Uh, We are in this together. And and that is, you know, in the first podcast, I talked about the Southern African uh, philosophy of um, um, Tungabantu, I am because we are. And it seems to me like this is uh, what I'm seeing manifested uh, right in front of me uh, here in Britain during this time. This is One Voice. Michael Wadsworth will be with us in just a short while. And you know he's so much more than his title within the Learning Network suggests. A background in young adults ministry. He has this deep, deep love for teaching, theological reflection and biblical studies. He's also acutely aware of the value of local or lay preachers. Michael will be with us soon. Now, do you know of the work of R.S. Thomas? I have seen the sun break through to illuminate a small field for a while and gone my way and forgotten it. But that was the pearl of great price, the one field that had the treasure in it. I realise now that I must give all that I have to possess it. Life is not hurrying on to a receding future nor hankering after an imagined past. It is the turning aside, like Moses, to the miracle of the lit bush, to a brightness that seemed as transitory as your youth once, but is the eternity that awaits you. Ronald Stuart Thomas was a Welsh poet and priest well known for his nationalistic zeal and spirituality. Someone who was really struck by Thomas's words is Caris Walsh, a curate training officer from Kettering. Caris is the author of Frequencies of God, Walking Through Advent with R.S. Thomas. And she was a guest in episode seven. And I think that her critique of this wonderful poetry is so good. There's something about how he wrote, which um, in which he used a sort of surprising uh, 
approach to language, which was he would put words together, which don't appear to fit. So classic uh, symbols, classic images are crunched together in, a, in a, an unusual and powerful way so that new meaning breaks through. So if you put words which don't naturally look like they fit together, together, something new happens. And he had a, a very creative and uh, a spare use of metaphor and symbolism, but spare in the sense that there are no extraneous words and yet something really explosive happens. And it's a bit like the most powerful religious language in that sense. Let's stay, shall we, with the literary theme for now and come back to Northamptonshire with the Reverend Richard Coles. Back in April of last year, he spoke about the book he'd written after the death of his partner, the Reverend David Coles. The catastrophic effect of grief, the, the ensuing madness-like state that it brought on, and the kindness of others are all explored in the book. What I wanted to do was just to capture what was happening, to write it down, pin it down in a way. I felt like a war correspondent reporting a sort of uh, an invasion or something. And I just wanted to capture it because I thought it was important somehow. And I think now I was trying to hang on to bits of David as well as he sort of faded because you do that when you lose someone, you, you just try to kind of grab what you can to hang on to it. So I think that was it. It was the, the hardest time for me, funnily enough, was in between writing and publication. So it was done and it was in and it was coming out. And I felt I felt like Sycorax and I'd maybe given birth to a Caliban and this strange misshapen thing would appear and everyone would mock, mock it or hate it or something. It was very, very, I was really anxious about it. And I received reassuring words from people like my publisher, my agent and so on. But there is this very odd moment. I've felt it before actually with other books, but with this book it was especially so because I suppose it's so personal. You are with One Voice, the podcast of the Methodist Church in Northampton, and we're two years old this month. From one Richard to another then, and Deacon Richard Beckett, who sat down from his role a year ago. Of course, someone like Richard is so much more than their role, and I, I always try, if I can, and, and kind of capture the spirit of our guests by getting them to talk about experiences that were influential to them festivals and particularly one of the most well-known christian festivals certainly resonated in richard's case i started going to greenbelt when i was fairly young it was first of all a combination of the uh, the rock festivals that i really enjoyed and the merging of my spiritual life as well at the time so i'd really enjoyed going to uh, the reading festivals uh, and other events like that but th there was always an element which uh, I was kind of a bit unhappy about I guess although enjoyed the music fantastically and there was something spiritual in a very broad sort of way about uh, being at a festival and I think being there with other people is a is a tremendous thing and sharing that and being in community but I think I just when I discovered Greenbelt, the the merging of my uh, Christian experience and Christian faith with music, that was very much a place where I felt I belonged, if you like. And the music was certainly important, but also the arts, because the arts is a big side of the Greenbelt Festival. It's um, 
quite liberal in its thinking and I think has become more so over the years and that's that's something that I really can relate to I think. What a couple of years it's been fascinating challenging rewarding sad all those things and more. And in October of last year, the podcast was joined by someone who knows a great deal about those displaced from African countries. As part of Black History Month, it was episode 17 that heard from the Reverend Charity Nzegwu. The name begins with the Jewish people, really, doesn't it? The, the word diaspora. And now it includes everybody else. And this idea of a forced movement probably still rings true today for some. Clearly, when I came over to this country, I was one of the the few who were pretty privileged to come over here, not because there were any political or social challenges at home, but because I wanted to be here. Um, and so I left Zimbabwe when the economic situation was still viable and Zimbabwe was a different place to be. And so that those circumstances were different, but there are a lot of people, particularly women and children, who have come over to this country from the various parts of Africa. And I, I'll mainly talk about Zimbabwe because that's what I know the most of not because people want, wanted to be here initially, but people were seeking greener pastures. They wanted to give a life, a better life to their families and to themselves because things were difficult at home. So in a sense, they are factors that forced people to leave a place that is home. And for a lot of us, we still talk about Zimbabwe as home. Uh, because that's where we were born, even though we have established ourselves here and we have had our children here who some have never been to Zimbabwe in other uh, cases, but we still refer to Zimbabwe as home. I find that interesting myself, but that is, that is how we see our origin as home. Wasn't it great to hear just some of the highlights of what has been a really enjoyable and fulfilling two years of the podcast? On a separate note, I'd like to say such a big thank you to all the children from King's Kids who covered a really impressive amount of Thornton's Park just last weekend as we record this. It was to raise money for the Just Giving page in Stephanie Thomason's name. Sun came out, the adults helped with marshalling and laying on a picnic for afterwards. And our thanks too to Carol and all her helpers for making that happen. Uh, obviously what's such a, a desperately sad time for Steph's children and family. And I think King's Kids is such a huge credit to all the parents and the members of the church who help to make it happen. And we even got to see the Reverend Francis run very impressive. How about we introduce someone who has the privilege of being our main guest on this, our second birthday episode. From the Learning Network, Michael Wadsworth has many abilities, passions and knowledge. I was especially keen to ask him about local preachers, something he's very, very enthusiastic about. He's a real champion, you know, of the unordained and their immense value in the church. And part of his online biography says that he worships 
as part of a small experimental church plant. Why don't we find out how the experimentation part is handled? So by experimental, I mean um, the church was planted by a number of us who've been involved in leadership of a large congregation. There are about five to 800 people part of that, that church. And what we began to recognise was that an awful lot of time, effort and energy was put in by an awful lot of people into running um, essentially a Sunday morning service. And there, there are strengths that model and there are people whose spirituality thrives within that model. But I think there was a pull within us uh, who planted a church to think through not everyone feels like this version of church is going to help them in their spirituality. And, and actually some people have been quite badly burned, I think, by that style church as well. And um, for, for some of us who are much more discussive, we're much more experiential in terms of how we engage with the Bible, how we engage with um, God, how we look to engage with the Holy Spirit. We were thinking there has to be a way of creating that environment in a much lower key kind of way. So the idea of gathering each other's homes around a meal table um, originally on a Friday afternoon. So we'd have kind of Friday evening dinner together um, with kids and you know whole families together trying to invite everyone to bring something to contribute so that there's this level of actually we participate in this space we don't just receive in this space um and also yeah creating room for that dialogue for people to process um not just what they're thinking about not just what's going on in their lives but um uh process some of the pain i think that they've found in church and spirituality in the past process some of their questions so, I mean, I, I guess you could describe it as a very, very intentional small group um, in, in some respects. But we, we're trying to figure out, you know, does it can a small group itself be a church? So, you know, we, we dedicate time to worship. We dedicate time to obviously engaging with the scriptures. We dedicate time to communion. And because it's not a Methodist church, we're able to share in communion without a presbyter present. Um, but yeah, so I mean, that that is the experiment, I guess. And the other thing is because it, we're quite small, that gives us quite a lot of um, flexibility in terms of if we decide we want to change something, we don't have to go through masses of committees or kind of figure out what we, how we're going to remortgage a building or anything like that. You know, we can we can swap and change as we see fit. Um, but yeah, so I, I guess for us, it's an experiment because it's different to what we were used to. I'm sure for other people that will sound like a very normal thing. Um, but uh, I, I think we, the language of experiment um, has been helpful for people as well to get their heads around what we're trying to do and to know that actually we're on a journey of figuring it out together and people are invited to be part of something which isn't particularly well-established or particularly formed, um, but something that they can help shape and grow along with us. Do you think, Michael, that that language of, of experimentation uh, could or should indeed be brought more into the churches themselves? Because there's, there's obviously been and continues to be a, a lot of talk, a lot of discussion and consultation about the structures themselves, the, the, the physical structures of, of the Methodist Church. Do we need this particular building? Do we need that location and resources as well, generally kind of all into the, all, all put up for question should there be more of, of, a, of a an examination of of kind of the format within church more innovation is is that where some of the answer lies do you think yeah it's a good question i think 
I think we have to appreciate that actually I don't think there's one right way of doing church. I think that actually fundamentally if the church is there to foster the faith and discipleship of the individuals that are part of it, there is a good question around, you know, sometimes I think we can become quite entrenched in our patterns of behavior and, and kind of modes of gathering and things like that. And, and it is always helpful, I think, for our growth and development to be shaken out of those comfort zones at various points. Um, but I don't necessarily think we have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. What I'm quite excited by in the life of the Methodist Church is the amount of time, effort and resource which is being put into things like the new new places for new people program, these opportunities for people to set up these more experimental things, not with the expectation that suddenly everyone who's been part of a more formalized group or congregation for a number of years has to suddenly change their whole approach to um, gathering. But actually, we can still experiment in new ways for people who would not necessarily find a home in those more established gatherings. So I, I do think there's something to be said for new experimental opportunities and for churches to critically evaluate some of how they do things and just think, is this really serving us? Do you know? Do we need to change things up a little bit so that people um, continue to be stretched in their faith? I guess probably my big concern is that sometimes we can become very, very comfortable in what we do and actually we can lose sight of why we do things. One of the beautiful things that I've discovered as I've come into the life of Methodism as part of my job um, has been getting to grapple with, I suppose, for, as, a, as a completely new person with some of what Methodism is about and passionate about. And I've been really touched by the theology that sits behind that. Um, but I think when we're not pushed to look at the theology that sits behind some of what we do, it can just become an assumed part of faith and, and, and we fail to see that it was originally set up to be deeply formational <laughs> and is now it doesn't form us because we just don't have to think about it you know a silly example of that might be you know the, the very robes that people wear in more formal church settings um, particularly the ordained ministers there is theology that has gone into those kind of clothing um, However, if, if you just see the clothing and you're not pushed to think about the theology, you just might think, why are they wearing funny robes? Um, and so I do think that sometimes reflecting back on the why and the theological why can be a, a hugely helpful thing. And I wonder whether actually before we go straight down the experimental route, we need to pause and go, OK, what is our why? What is our theological impetus here and how might this form us? And I think those are important questions, first and foremost. And I think we went on that journey before we planted what we're trying to do in Derby um, and continue to be on that journey. Um, so I, th I think probably that that almost more theological philosophical questioning is is the key rather than just the let's do something new for the sake of it to kind of shake things up and make them more lively. You referenced the, the ordained there, of course. Um, I, I think it, it goes almost without saying that we uh, widely recognise the huge importance of the unordained, the role of mm. of the lay preacher and ha the the, the uh, essential part that, that they play. And and it's a role that's, that's deeply rooted in history, isn't it? Do you feel in supporting uh, them, Michael, that kind of historical weight on your shoulders? Yeah, I think it's one of the deep strengths of Methodism is this idea that actually 
the gatekeepers of the theology of the church aren't necessarily the the ordained experts or kind of those who are um or even those with the loudest voices but there is this idea that actually there is a responsibility on all of us to be people who are engaging with god looking for god in scripture in the world um trying to help encourage one another in our discipleship and um i think the responsibility on local preachers is profound i often describe them as the kind of the theological gatekeepers of the church that actually if the church is going to grow in its spirituality more often than not actually that it doesn't rest on on those who are ordained whose kind of job i think it is more in methodism to shepherd the flock if you like and it's the local preachers who actually are going to do the a lot of the um theological biblical development that encourages people to grow as disciples so i think it's a weighty responsibility on them and yeah therefore i do feel quite a weighty responsibility um but it's also a joy because as i say i think one of the things i'm really passionate about is how do we help everyone engage well with the bible i'm not particularly inspired by the idea of um only working in the context of the academy or only working in a higher education context because i do believe that the bible is a resource for the whole church um and one of the things i love about uh, the local preacher's setup is that it really does recognize that and actually the opportunity to train as a local preacher is open to everyone now i think there are some skills that people need to learn i think there is some um there are better and worse ways if i can put it that way of reading the bible um and so to help guide people in that is really helpful but equally i love the fact that it's open access to all um and i think there are good ways and bad ways that we can help equip people and i think we're still trying to figure that out um mm. as a team of us who are involved in in shaping worship leading and preaching training in the connection there there was a time and uh, of course i am uh, referencing the 19th century not recent times uh, but that time when becoming a local preacher was a, a gateway to formal education for for many who you know perhaps might otherwise have been denied it and and uh, would you say there are other uh, significant but now you know contemporary benefits to to the role um, how does how does it enhance someone's life would you say yeah, I mean, I think one of the sounds I often hear from students is that they do find it deeply compelling and helpful. Even those who've struggled with the course, frankly, do find it massively beneficial for their own personal growth, um, massively beneficial in terms of their ability to engage with the Bible, hugely beneficial, or actually even on, sometimes on a personal level. You know, they discover things about themselves through the process that... Um, they hadn't seen before for many it's a boost in confidence for many it's a um it's an opportunity to discover that they can do something i think what's interesting is as as you said historically probably training as a local preacher opened up access to higher education i think possibly the pendulum swung too far in that direction um in terms of lots of people who ended up training trained in a very formal academic sense and even um up until recent times in methodism if you go back to um faith and worship is the, the the main way that people trained it was much more academically minded um people had to produce essays and all sorts as as part of that and and one of the things we're trying to do now is say hey we can hear the voices of those who haven't necessarily trained formally in higher education and what we don't want is for the course to be academic to the exclusion of voices that we do need to hear um 
I think reading the Bible isn't just an academic pursuit. I think it's a Christian pursuit. Um, and so there's a tough line to walk, as I say, between equipping people with what they need, um, but not um, not reducing engaging with the Bible to a purely kind of academic or scholarly pursuit. Because I, I, I think that's a bit of a misnomer. I think I think there's if you imagine kind of the Venn diagram, there's overlap, if you like, between the skill set for academics and the skill sets for being a local preacher but they're not synonymous i, I always think it's uh, uh, telling that four of the tolpuddle Tol martyrs were local preachers including the leader do you i mean do you think it still as a role carries echoes of uh, activism and social conscience and, and if it doesn't should it yeah again great question i think probably the the outlet for being a local preacher still looks an awful lot generally like it's it's the day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week, i should say fulfilling of the circuit plan it's making sure that churches have input from the pulpit um i think we are trying to train people to think about where is god at work in the world and what does it look like for the church to um get on board with that to partner with god in that um and so i think there are a lot of local preachers out there who are incredibly switched on in terms of social action in terms of um missional engagement in terms of kind of um evangelistic projects i don't think it's a formal part of the role i think you can be a local preacher and bypass that if i'm honest um it is possible but again as one of the beautiful things actually about local preachers for me is that they are a they, they should be in the life of a circuit community of practice. They should be people who gather together, who stretch one another, who challenge one another, who take seriously the role together. And I would hope that it is in the context of the local preachers meeting that if people are essentially not practicing what they're preaching, <laughs> that, that is called out and challenged because I think, I think we do want to be pushing one another further and further and encouraging one another to um, keep taking seriously how we are participating in the work of God in the context in which we find ourselves. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, I think, you know, should martyrdom be part of a local, I don't think we want to see our local preachers be <laughs> no, martyred. No. Um, but I, I, you know, I do think that the, the spirit of, you know, how do we lay our lives down for the cause and how do we take up our crosses daily should be something which local preachers reflect on. Um, and I think many do. Some very interesting areas covered there. I'd like to thank Michael Wadsworth, for his contribution to the podcast. I hope, as always, that you've enjoyed listening to all of our contributors over the past two years now. I'd also like to give thanks for the involvement and enthusiasm of the Reverend Romeo Pedro and Reverend Francis Itiri because they are such great supporters of the podcast and, and know so many fascinating people from all around the world who we managed to interview and have tell their stories on One Voice. My thanks, of course, to you for listening. And here's to our next birthday. Stories, community, and what brings us together. This is One Voice.